February, the Ministry of Health advised the government that if left substantially uncontrolled, the COVID-19 pandemic could result in the deaths of 33,600 New Zealanders. In a new report uh, called Quantifying the Wellbeing Costs of COVID-19, Senior New Zealand Initiative Senior Fellow, uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson makes the case that despite the shocking potential of the virus, we should still put a limit on just how much we're willing to spend to stop its spread. Bryce, is that a fair characterization of your report? Yes, uh, although um, I was just replicating the methodology of the epidemiologists, so I was just using their values, uh, not my own. I was just putting their updated death figures in, into their methodology. So you're saying that the Ministry of Health has previously prepared work that is based around this idea of uh, valuing a life. Is that, is that correct? Well, yeah, actually not strictly the Ministry of Health. This was um, half a dozen uh, epidemiologists uh, publishing a paper in an academic journal. Um, but they, uh, two, two or three of them, are the ones who've been advising the Ministry of Health um, uh, very comprehensively in subsequent papers, um, several of which were released by the Ministry of Health. So the concept of putting a value on a life will be highly controversial to some people. Uh, but as I understand it, the, the government does this all the time. Can you explain just how you can put a value on a life and examples where this is done? Well, we as individuals, of course, um, do that almost on a daily basis when we decide what uh, risks to take, um, what, uh, what, you know, how much alcohol to consume, what sort of, uh, how healthy a lifestyle we live. Uh, whether we'll do a dangerous activity um, like hang gliding or something. So, um, and uh, how safely we drive in our car. So at the individual level, um, it's, it's not controversial. It's something we do for ourselves with our, our own lives. Mind you, to a degree, when we're driving a car uh, at, at speed, we're putting other people's lives at risk too. The, the greater difficulty comes when um, uh, people designing infrastructure and taking safety into account, infrastructure can include buildings and roads and the like, have to decide how much um, to spend on safety uh, because no one can afford uh, gold-plated infrastructure everywhere. So trade-offs have to be made. And the difficult question and the uncomfortable question is um, how should those trade-offs be drawn and at what level? And as it's, um, it's essential that that's done if, uh, if safety is to be taken seriously because, as I say in my report, it doesn't make sense for government to spend um, uh, $1 million saving one life if um, it could have spent that $1 million saving two lives somewhere else. So, so for sheer consistency in government decision-making, um, that dilemma of, uh, uh, has, to, has to be addressed, what should be the, the common trade-off to use across all sorts of safety issues. I guess um, if for every dollar uh, that we spend on our response to COVID-19, alternatives could include spending that money on uh, road safety, um, the, the budget for Pharmac, life-saving drugs funded through Pharmac, is another Yes, immunisation yeah, programs, they save yes. lives and they come at a cost, yes. 
So in the case of COVID-19, uh, we're talking about the lives of, uh, according to the Ministry of Health forecast, as many as 33,600 people. Is that, a, is that a worst case scenario? Can you just explain um, the context? Yes, this paper which I was um, piggybacking on had um, worst case scenarios. Um, so uh, this, is, this is towards the pessimistic end of the spectrum. And one of them was 12,600 lives would be um, potentially um, lost, people would die, uh, if the virus were allowed to take its course, more or less unchecked. And at the top end, they had 33,600. So in my report, I just plugged those two values into the epidemiologist model. And so, so this is if the government did nothing? Uh, yeah, if, yeah, if nothing substantial, if it was largely left to take its course, uh, then under what they call the worst case uh, scenarios, might be the deaths might be between 12,600 and 33,600, with a lot more people being hospitalised, of course. I should mention we're joined today by Joe Ascroft, who's an economist who consults with the Taxpayers Union. Joe, did you want to jump in? Um, yeah, I'm just interested, Bryce. I, I think your report makes a lot of sense um, in terms of providing some kind of sound point estimates. How do you feel so far about the government's response? Do you think they're tracking too high in their spending response, too low? I, I think a lot of people are kind of conflating the economic stimulus, which the government is trying to throw at the kind of inevitable recession, and the sheer, I suppose, pandemic response. Uh, in terms of inflating that spending? Um, the, the first thing I'd say is that governments around the world uh, face very difficult trade-offs on this. And um, I'm reminded of something uh, University of Chicago law professor Richard Epstein once wrote, that um, we should be tolerant of governments um, which have hard decisions to make and get them wrong and we should reserve our ire for governments that have easy decisions to make and get them wrong. And I think everyone can agree that um, our government, like others, has unenviable decisions to make. Uh, having made that point, I, I, I haven't seen enough um, of, in the way of updated um, balancing of benefits and costs since this 2017 academic paper which I've piggybacked on. And um, the worry in my mind is uh, it, it's clear that this thing is only really dangerous for elderly people. Um, so it seems there are two options. One is you isolate elderly people from, from the rest and let um, younger people get on with generating income and, um, and jobs, or whether you do the opposite. And, and so far... Um, yeah, we've been quarantining younger people at, at a vast expense and accumulating expense and lost jobs and lost income. Um, and actually, we haven't stopped at getting out of uh, the worst place of all, which is elderly residential homes. So uh, the open question in my mind is, uh, would it make more sense to have... Um, have a policy that concentrated on isolating the elderly and the younger people with vulnerable with conditions that make them vulnerable and freeing it up more for uh, 
for you know children to go back to school and um, younger healthy adults get back to work. Yes, I should probably highlight Bryce that in, in your report you actually do name a potential figure uh, that is the maximum that we could spend, assuming that worst case scenario of thirty three thousand six hundred is accurate. Yeah, you suggest six point one percent of GDP. Can you just briefly? Uh, well, firstly, tell us how much that is in billions um, and also how you arrived at that figure. Yes, okay. Uh, that's about $18 billion, uh, if I remember correctly, in the report. And um, that's uh, derived by using this model I'm piggybacking on to add together um, estimated losses due to sickness and to death and to all the costs to the health system, that's GPs and hospitals, from um, treating the large number of people who, uh, who, who get sick enough to either be hospitalised or to approach the G- GP. So that's where that number comes from, and it comes out at um, uh, 6.1% of annual GDP, I should say. Yes, I understand to arrive at that figure, you needed to tweak the... Um, the existing model that the Ministry of Health had to account for the fact that COVID-19, the effect is largely on uh, elderly people, specifically when, when we're talking about mortality. Uh, can you explain how that affects the calculation in terms of how much we should be willing to sacrifice in the fight against COVID-19? Yeah, certainly. Um, it's a different thing um, to, to lose someone's life who's got sort of 40 years ahead of them than it is to lose someone's uh, life who's only got one or two years ahead of them. And the epidemiologist's uh, methodology uh, takes that into account. So um, it it calculates, using statistical tables, the likely remaining years of life of people in different age brackets, and then it attributes um, a, a dollar value to each of those lost years of life if they die prematurely. And so the number of lost years multiplied by that cost, which is typically they use GDP per capita or something like that, um, gives uh, the value of, or the cost um, in dollar terms of those lost years. Yes. I know for a lot of people this is quite a, a morbid conversation, um, but but I guess it makes sense regardless of what you think the the value of a, a year of life is. Um, we should be willing to apply it consistently in terms of comparing the value of our COVID nineteen measures against other measures that could uh, save people's lives or extend their lives. Yes, that's right, and. Um... The, the nature of the beast is anyone can put their own value in um, and and see what the you know, see what numbers come out. So if you don't think that the, the values the epidemiologists are, are using are the right values, then the correct thing to do is to say what you think those values should be and explain why they're different and um, see see what numbers have come out. It's a contribution to public debate. I just have a question here, Bryce. Clearly, the, the number of lives that would need to be saved is under some degree of uncertainty. It's difficult to predict how the virus might affect our population compared to other populations overseas. How do you think 
that should impact government decision making when we're when they're deciding whether to go with say a 6.1 percent of gdp figure or say a 3.7 percent figure of gdp to save 12,600 lives you know how do they address that uncertainty and how do you think they should address that uncertainty um with difficulty and as best they can um so yeah the epidemiologists who we're all having to rely on for these estimates um i've got no expertise in it myself, so that's why I'm solely using the numbers um, uh, from their paper, and I, we've all got to realise that different epidemiologists have probably got different numbers, most likely. So the first thing we have to do is listen to the experts and see what probabilities they're putting on things and what they suggest. Then, of course, the politicians are going to say, have to tell themselves, well, the only thing you know about any predictions is that they'll be the wrong numbers, but it looks like it's pretty serious anyway. Uh, on the other hand, the, the cost the cost of closing down commerce are horrendous and having over 100,000 people un, un, unemployed or underemployed is a big cost. So they just have to draw the, draw the balance. Now, we economists can help by assuming probability distributions and and, um, and and working out what seed. You, you can use cost-benefit analysis to, to screen out ridiculous sums to spend uh, too much or too little. But around the middle, their judgment calls and when no one can be sure of the probabilities, that's the, the politicians just have to do their best. I don't want to dig too much into the detail here, but I'm kind of interested to tease this out. So... I think it makes sense you want to estimate some probabilities for different downside risk scenarios um, and so on and so forth. But clearly part of deciding optimal decision-making is deciding how risk-averse we are and should be as a society. Is that something, if you were at Treasury receiving epidemiological advice, that Treasury advisors would be making calls on, or is that a political decision? The uh, economists can run the models with assuming different degrees of risk aversion, and we can draw inferences about people's willingness to take risk, and that has been done a little bit with wage differentials, that for the same level of human skill, people who take riskier jobs uh, tend to get paid a bit more. So you can draw some in inferences but maybe different people have different attitudes to risk too i've read that people who take riskier jobs also tend to be smokers to a greater degree than than the population average so so that does indicate um you know different attitudes to the preservation of oneself um in this particular case though i don't think risk aversion I'd have to think about this a bit more. I don't think risk aversion pushes you in one direction or another. If you're risk averse, um, you could want to minimise the cost to lost incomes and jobs, or you might want to minimise lost lives. Um, which which is it? it? It's not clear to me that um, there's an uh, that there's an answer to that, but with it, which pushes a risk averse person in one direction or the other. Just thinking about the government's response uh, 
it's clear they need to make these difficult trade-offs. Do you get the sense that they are receiving the advice necessary to think about the COVID-19 response in these terms? No, that comes back to my answer before, that I wish that they were publishing um, up-to-date versions of that 2017 paper. Um, I haven't mentioned at this point, but that 2017 paper used the age distribution of deaths that prevailed in, in the 1918 flu epidemic, which tend to be children and people of working age. And that was why it was a very important adjustment to to switch it to this convirus where the death rate's highest in, in the elderly. And that, that made about a difference of about $5 billion, as I recall, to the projected cost. So, um, yeah, that's the... Yeah, that, that's my biggest reservation, is when I'm not getting a sense from the government or in the published papers that this these trade-offs are being um, addressed in a systematic way. And I just, just did some back-of-the-envelope numbers on the Treasury scenarios released yesterday, and um, for some of those scenarios, they're massively more costly than the others, and the extra cost couldn't possibly be justified in terms of the expected extra lives saved. Not if that 33,600 estimate is at the top end of the likelihoods. When we talk about the cost of these responses, um, and take, for example, your suggested 6.1% of GDP um, response, uh, are we talking about taxpayer money or is this the full cost of the lost productivity? Um, caused by... A yeah, this has nothing to do with the fiscal transfers like the wage subsidies. This is totally about the lost uh, national income and lost production. So it's it, it's the real opportunity lost to people. And um, I, I know this is probably just a matter of retreating that Treasury data, but what are we actually looking at in terms of the hit to GDP over the next uh, six months or so? So, year into June 2021, um, the the loss in annual GDP, 2009, $2010, so you add a bit to that in current dollars, um, varied to 2021 from 30, million, 30 billion, sorry, less than Treasury's forecast in December through to 86 billion. Uh, Worse off, eighty-six billions at scenario three. So these are these are massive, um, and that's just what, what eighty-six billion off uh, is the worst case on what was forecast before this all happened, and thirty billion in the best case. But it, it's worse than that. They the Treasury's done projections through to twenty twenty-four, and when I add up all, all the losses. Um, over the two, four, the four and a bit year period, um, the the least cost of all this is sixty eight uh, billion. That's scenario one, and the biggest cost is scenario three again, and it's one hundred and seventy five billion. So um, just just a massive amount to spend per 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 um, life, hopefully saved. 
So, so where where you're suggesting um, an upper limit of spending or sacrificing, I should say, around six percent of GDP, we're actually looking at um, twenty or even thirty percent. Uh, yeah, be careful to say six point point one percent of one year's GDP. One year's GDP is about three three twenty billion. Um, so yeah, we're we're looking at massive multiples of that if you stretch if these if these scenario forecasts the treasuries are close enough. Um, and if, it, if they, these losses stretch out over three or four years. Okay, um, this is this is a bit more abstract, um, Bryce, and I'm, I, I, I don't know the answer to it, and it's not strictly an economic question. Uh, how can the Prime Minister, assuming that if she is receiving the kind of advice uh, that you that you have outlined in this report, how can the prime minister communicate these trade offs to New Zealanders in a way that actually allows her to um, to maintain her campa- uh, her compassionate appearance? Well, well, I think you know this is compassionate. <laughs> this is this is looking at how you can save the most lives sort of per dollar. So what could be more compassionate than that? Um, the because you can save more lives if you spend the money well. Um, the in terms of how she communicated, um, yeah, this this is mainly um, communicating uh, to the professionals, the advisors, and the analysts inside the government agencies and the like. So, what I think, what I I hope she'd be doing is is sort of what they did earlier when they released a bunch of had the Ministry of Health release a bunch of these papers uh, at the end of March. So some of these papers being released should include these updated calculations of the balancing of benefits and costs. So she, she shouldn't have to talk to that a lot. She should, should be selling the overall policy. But a public debate could be better, would be better informed amongst the professional audiences um, and there'd be more contributions there. If if more of this stuff was being released, certainly we'll certainly be uh, looking forward to anything that the government chooses um, chooses to reveal about the information that is driving its COVID nineteen response. And I suspect we'll be looking to you, Bryce, um, for your analysis if or when that does emerge. In the meantime, thanks so much for joining us, Bryce. It's a um, it's a difficult discussion, but it is one that really should be fundamental to the government's response. Uh, thank you again. Yeah, thank you very us. much. Bye.